Bible, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. We will begin with some reading in the Old Testament and then we will move forward to the New. Good to see you this morning. It's such a great privilege and honor to be able to gather with other Christians, the people of God, to think about the things of God, to worship God in song, to pray, to remember the death of Jesus, the sacrifice he made for us, and to open God's word. And I'm privileged to be able to speak for a few minutes from some of the things that I've been studying and thinking about through this week uh, to try to benefit you. Thank you for being here. We want to welcome our visitors. Thank you for being here. We are happy that you've made the choice to be with us, and we want you to feel welcome. We'd love to get to know you. Anything we can do to help you to be right with God, we'd love to do that. I'd like to begin our study this morning by reading from the account of Israel meeting God on Mount Sinai. And as I read, I want you to think about, as you read through these words together with me, to think about what it would like to be present for these events. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported of the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. To the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So God's going to come down on the mountain. And so the people need to consecrate themselves, make themselves holy, wash their clothes, prepare themselves to meet God. They need to be held back. There are limits to how close they can come to the mountain where God is. Watch out even that animals don't get too close. And then God does come, and there is thunder and lightning. There is a thick cloud on the mountain. There is a trumpet blast that is unexplained. The whole mountain, wrapped in smoke and fire, begins to shake. And God answers Moses. As Moses speaks with the voice of a man, God answers in thunder. We learn in another place that God's angels are present in this moment. In chapter 20 and verse 18, Exodus 20 and verse 18... It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness 
where God was. So the people are afraid and they say, you speak to God, Moses. Don't let him speak to us or we'll die. And Moses says something interesting there in verse 20. In verse 20 he says, God has come to test you that the fear of him may be upon you. So he says, and this is fascinating, in verse 20, do not fear, God has come to test you that the fear of him may be upon you. Don't be afraid because God wants you to be afraid. The fear is not just for this moment. It is something that is going to go on. And God wants this moment to be drilled into the memory of his people so that they may not sin. And so in chapter 24 of Exodus, in Exodus 24 and verse 3, Exodus 24 and 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so now the people, consecrated, made holy, impressed by the presence of God, they are ready to come to terms with God. Here are God's terms. And so God presents him. Here are the rules. Here are the laws that God expects you to keep. And the people say, All that Jehovah has spoken, we will do. And there are animals that are killed, and the blood of the covenant is put on them as if to ratify this covenant. For once and for all. Now that is an impressive scene. But the question I have is, what, what does Mount Sinai have to do with you and me? Like, what do we get from a story like this? This is a story about a group of people most of us don't belong to ethnically. They lived a long, long time ago in a part of the world many of us, probably most of us, have never been to. And there is this agreement that we know we're no, no longer a part of. So what, what can we learn here? What could be a benefit to us? So what I want to talk about this morning is what we're going to call Sinai 2.0. That is, a new and improved Sinai. This is a picture of the traditional area of Mount Sinai. And yet, when Scripture talks about Sinai, it is not something that is just left to the dustbin of history, just an old relic. Instead, New Testament writers bring Sinai forward and talk about how that is meaningful for us as Christians. And I want to examine one of those passages for our time this morning. It is in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you would, grab your Bible, turn over to Hebrews 12, and we'll be spending the rest of our time in that place. Hebrews chapter 12. In this text, everything that we've read is sort of the prelude, the background, from which we can begin to understand what we now stand to do in relationship to God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. Hebrews 12 and verse 18. And see, as we go through these, remember what we just read about Israel's experience at the original Sinai. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
So the Hebrew writer has been talking to them about the possibility that they would abandon the Lord, that they would give up, that they would not have the endurance they need, and so they need to strengthen themselves, they need to look to Jesus. He's telling them to watch out for somebody like Esau or some root of bitterness that springs up. But he says, this is the reason why. Because you haven't come to Mount Sinai. Verse 18 says, you have not come. And that idea of coming is the idea of how we approach God. It's used throughout the letter to the Hebrews to talk about how you come before God. So when the Hebrew people came before God on Mount Sinai, they approached. You remember they consecrated and Moses led the people out and they stand at the base of the mountain. They have come to God. And he says, you haven't come to a mountain like they came to. You haven't come, verse 18, to what may be touched. The idea here is it's physical and tangible. That's what they did. They came to a literal physical mountain and God's presence came down and they could see the clouds. They could feel the shaking. They could hear the thunder. Everything about it was physical. It could be touched. Of course, you didn't want to touch it, but it could be touched. He says, you haven't come to that. What we have come to, the way we approach God is not physical and tangible. We have something different. What they approached was terrifying. It's a blazing fire and thunder and lightning and darkness and gloom and tempest and terrifying words so that people tremble with fear when they hear them. But we haven't come to that, he says. That's not how we have approached God. And verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So God's holiness is so absolute. And I hope you understand that when God makes all these rules about consecrating the people, washing their clothes, stay away from women, don't let anybody get too close. All of this is about the holiness of God. God is completely other. You don't just come to God flippantly. God is not to be approached with just, you know, whatever you woke up wearing. God is not to be approached in just whatever way you think would be appropriate. You know, you just do what you feel like. Come as you are. No, God is to be approached as if he deserves a place that no one else gets. And so they are to be prepared to approach. In fact, so prepared that there are some people, some creatures that cannot approach. God is too holy. But the sense of Sinai is that there are some, some things and some people just have to be kind of kept away. God is too holy to be approached, except in one special, unique circumstances in the person of Moses. The other sense of Sinai is that the people don't really get a clear vision of God. What they see is a cloud. What they see is kind of obscured. Clouds don't really reveal, do they? They hide. So God has come, and he's come down on this mountain, and yet the people don't get a, a fuller sense of God. Surely they hear about his character from what he tells Moses, but they don't get anything but the impression of fear that God is not a being to be trifled with. And so the Hebrew writer says, you have not come. To Mount Sinai. So what have we come to? This is verse 22. In verse 22 he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. So the writer now tells, now tells us this is what we have come to, how we do approach God. We don't sit at the foot of a terrifying mountain. We are in a far better place. We are what we're going to call Sinai 2.0, a reimagined Sinai, a better way God reveals himself to us. I want to take a minute and break down 
what he says here. I hope you noticed that in 22 to 24, it's, it's rapid fire. You've come to this and to this and to this and to this. I believe it's intended to give an impression of how much we've come to, how blessed we are as a people. But I want to take a minute and sort of break all of these down. Now, in verse 22, he talks about these things. I need to turn this on. Uh, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. There are three names. I believe they go together. They are all place names, place descriptions. Mount Zion is a way of describing the hill on which the city of Jerusalem is built based on the mountain on which it rests. Now, obviously, Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai is an important shift. But also, you have the city of the living God, the place where God lives, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, throughout the letter of he- to the Hebrews, the Hebrew writer has been impressing us with the fact that physical things really speak to a spiritual, deeper reality. So, you know, there is a tabernacle that was on earth, but the Hebrew writer says, no, there is a true tabernacle in heaven, the real thing that the, the physical thing was a copy of. And so there is a a physical priest, but they're just echoes of the true high priest, Jesus, who is far greater. There, there was a rest that some of the people got, but there is a true rest that awaits the people of God. And so he keeps saying that. And, and so when he talks about this Jerusalem, this city, this heavenly Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, what he is saying is this is the, the real Jerusalem, the Jerusalem where God always intended to live with his people in a city where we were all together. This is what God always wanted. In fact, uh, Isaiah talks about this, Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. He says, For behold, I, God is speaking here, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So he says, I'm going to create new heavens and new earth, and it's going to look like Jerusalem. It's going to be look like the city that I always intended to have where I live with my people. It's the city of God. Now, physical Jerusalem never got there. By the way, that city's still there. It still hasn't got there. It still couldn't fit that description. He says, that's something I'm going to do. And the Hebrew writer says, no, but you have come to the real thing. You have come to this. Maybe it's not fully realized yet. And yet this is where you are. In fact, he says a lot about how some of the great men and women of Scripture, those people that we study about sometimes, they are there because they've been seeking it. Turn back a page to Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, he talks about this with Abraham. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 Listen to how he talks about this city that they have been seeking. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Whose designer and builder is God. What city is he talking about? Well he tells us a little further in verse 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They're seeking something. That's not a physical place. Now, remember, Abraham had to leave his home and go wandering. And and the Hebrew writers say, look, if this was about finding a good place to live, he could have gone back home. But that's not what he was seeking. 
He was seeking a heavenly city, a different kind of country, a place where God was. And God is not ashamed to be called his God. God's willing to accept him. Abraham's going to be in the heavenly Jerusalem because that's what he sought with his life, the place where God is. And I particularly want to emphasize that when you talk about Mount Zion or the city of the living God or the heavenly Jerusalem, you are talking about a place where God lives with his people. That is, it is not Sinai where God lives with his people. Well, he'll talk to Moses and he'll live up on the mountain and everybody's terrified of him. But God lives with his people and they become his people in a special, fully realized sense. All right, let's go back to chapter 12. We're not going to take that long with each one of these, uh, but I want to break down what we're reading here. Hebrews 12 and verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Innumerable angels. Several accounts in the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about how angels were present on Mount Sinai and how the, the law was delivered through angels, mediated through angels or by angels. Even Hebrews says that. And now he says, not that there are just angels here, but we have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now your version might not have that word festal gathering some versions translate it differently and put that phrase with the, uh, with the church, the next clause that's coming. But the word itself implies joy and warm reception. I don't know how you think about angels. People are always fascinated with angels, but angels in Scripture are terrifying. When people see angels, they fall down dead. Angels take care. One angel takes care of an army of 185,000 Assyrians. Angels are fearsome. And yet... We have come to angels who are in a warm, accepting, joyful mood. It's a blessing. And so he says, that's where you have come. Angels not here to destroy or to harm, but to serve us, because in doing so they serve God. He has come. We have come to God, the judge. Did I miss? Yes, I did. Okay. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint, but we need to back up here. Uh, I, I missed the clause in verse 23, to the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly is our word for church. That is the group of people that belong to God. They are here on Mount Zion, the new Sinai, the church or the assembly of the firstborn. Now we need to say, first of all, he is not saying firstborn as in Jesus. That's not the idea. It is a plural word, firstborn, the church of the firstborn ones. We are the ones who are firstborn. And that's important because what that means, that is a status symbol. That is not just a birth thing. I think in our time, if someone were to say, we're all the firstborn, that would be the first thing that came to our minds as we're talking about who was born first. But actually, in Scripture, as you probably are aware, the firstborn is the one who inherits blessings. And so we stand to inherit beside Jesus. We become the people who have that same claim. We are joint heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ. So we become a part of the people of God. That's where we've come to, to the church, to the people of God. We join them. Now, God calls Israel his firstborn repeatedly. These are my people, and they have this special role for me. And now we are not just physical Israel, but all of God's people who follow him and belong to him, enrolled in heaven. He knows who we are. He keeps track of that. So Apologies for not putting that on the board. That was just an oversight. All right, uh, God the judge, verse 23, to God the judge of all. Lots of ways to describe God, right? To describe God as the judge, sort of a scary proposition. 
I don't know of any of us that are super excited to go before a judge where we're going to stand and the possibility of conviction is going to be there. This is what God is. This is how God is portrayed. There is the intimidation idea of we're coming before someone who holds our fate in his hands. And yet there is also an awareness of the fact that this judge is on our side as we read in other places in the New Testament. A little further in verse 23, to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits spirit of the righteous perfected. That, that idea of being made perfect is, is heavy in Hebrews. It is always put with the idea of Christ's blood perfecting. We are perfected not by the old sacrifices of the, the law of Moses, but we are perfected by Christ's sacrifice. So when you talk about the spirits of righteous people, we're talking about that crowd from Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. We're talking about Abraham and Moses. We're talking about Noah and Abel and Enoch and all of these people that, we are, that are described as men who are commended by their faith. And yet, those people were not perfected. Look in chapter 11 and verse 39. Chapter 11, Hebrews 11 and verse 39, he says, All these, talking about this long list of these heroes of faith, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So here are these people who are waiting to be perfected along with us by the blood of Christ, made righteous, made complete. He says, they are here on Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, the new Sinai. He then goes on to say, we're back in chapter 12 and verse 24, chapter 12 and verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, the mediator. You remember, we read this this morning, back at Sinai, God gave a covenant, didn't he? He made a covenant with the people, sprinkled blood on all the people. They were ready to do what God said. Jesus, though, brings a new covenant, a better covenant. Part of what Hebrews is arguing is that the old covenant was was insufficient for us because we couldn't keep it. We needed something better, made on better promises with a better blood. And Jesus brings that. So Jesus gives a covenant that we can keep because it is rooted in mercy. So here's what I want you to see. God doesn't just descend on a mountain in terror and scare us all. Instead, the way this covenant begins is by God coming to earth as a mere man, living in a way that has a tremendous impact, but not at the moment it happens, in a way that a lot of the world overlooks and ignores. And God shows his care and his desire to make a covenant with man through becoming a man. So this is a new and improved kind of Sinai. He also talks about how we come to the sprinkled blood. We're in verse 24 here that speaks a better word Than the blood of Abel. Scripture tells us that Abel's blood cries out from the ground to God. What does it say? Abel's blood says, Cain killed me. Hebrews also says that Abel, even though he is dead, through his faith he still speaks. But here he says, we, we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So where Abel's blood says Cain was wicked, Jesus' blood says that not only is Jesus righteous, but wickedness will be defeated and others will be made righteous. Abel's faith talks about what he did and what he accomplished through faith. Jesus' blood talks about what he accomplished for everyone through his sacrifice. 
But it does take us back to Sinai, doesn't it? It takes us back to the idea, the sprinkling of blood, the animals that died that day. We haven't come to that. We haven't come to mere animal blood. We have come to a purifying and sanctifying blood. All right, so you got all that in your head? We've come a long way. I appreciate your attention. We're, we're almost to the point where we can talk about what this means. We have come to the new Sinai, the place where God meets his people in a new and special way. So if approaching a physical mountain in the desert provoked a reaction of awe and fear, the question is, what reaction should be provoked by the fact that we have come to a better place with richer blessings and greater company? And the answer is, in short, we should have the same reaction, but even more so. So let's read what the Hebrew writer says about how we should respond. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now I want to impress you with the fact that Sinai and the events there were intended not just to be a one-time thing. But as Moses said, God wants the fear of him to be in you so that you may not sin. An ongoing remembrance of the fear of God. God wants Moses, he says, I want the people to listen to you forever. An ongoing expectation of remembering what happened when God appeared on the mountain. And so here, as Christians, God wants a similar response when we understand who he is and how we deal with him and how much he has given us. The first application he makes is don't refuse the speaker. In verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And the reason is, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he says, take that fear that they had. Hey, if somebody gets too close to the mountain, we're going to have to stone him. He says, take that and, and just amplify it even more. If that's what happened when he was on earth, how much more when he is in heaven do we listen to God? If they were afraid, don't let him speak to us anymore. Whatever you say, we will do it. If that's the attitude when he is on earth, how much more when he is in heaven? If that's the attitude when he gives these commands that don't have any grace, how much more when there is grace? If that's the command when he's here on this physical mountain, how much more when we have come to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect and the innumerable company of angels who are in festal gathering? We are part of the people of God. We are the church of the firstborn. How much more do we listen to the God who booms from heaven? That spirit of all and fear should be ours. He says in verse 26, At that time his voice shook the earth. We read that. 
But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what he is saying there is, as sure as we know God's voice shook the earth, then he has promised he's going to shake even harder and destroy the things that we now see and occupy. And he says that just means we need to listen to what he says. Sometimes we need a reminder of who we are listening to. I thought about that. This may seem like a frivolous example to you. I don't mean for it to be frivolous, just a comparison. Sometimes we need to remember who we're listening to, and that happens in my house sometimes. Sometimes, won't name any names, we tend to forget who mom and dad are. And we live together and we hang out, and sometimes we begin to think that when mom and dad are speaking, it's the beginning, beginning of a, an opinion poll. What does everybody think about this? And there has to be kind of a, a recalibration, right? Where we, now, wait a minute. Who's mom and dad? Who are the children? What's the relationship here? It's not because there can't be familiarity. It's because at the end of the day, there has to be a relationship that involves authority. See that you don't refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse him or you will regret it. So how do we show that kind of respect for God's words? I think it may help us that when we pick up our copy of the Bible to conjure up that picture of Sinai in our heads. If God were booming this message to us today, would we respond any differently than we do? If we were scared to hear it, would we respond differently? Would we obey it? Would we take it more seriously? Would we be more careful in how we read it? Would we be more diligent to read it? When our conscience that has been educated by Scripture warns us not to do something, if we really believed and feared the speaker, would we listen more to our own conscience when we're tempted to do something we know is wrong? When our brothers and sisters caution us for something from Scripture and they say, watch out, I'm concerned about you, I'm concerned about this, are we refusing the one who speaks? As we hear preaching from the Bible and sometimes it's not going to fit right because it doesn't fit the way we think, and the way we like to live, are we going to throw that out or are we going to adjust our thinking and our living? What would we do if we were at the foot of Sinai? Now, I am not saying, and I don't believe the Hebrew writer is either, I'm not saying that we can appreciate God for his love and for his mercy and that we can't become familiar with God and the word of God. I'm simply saying that sometimes in our familiarity, we lose a sense of who God is and the nature of that relationship. And we forget that his word is not to be trifled with. But I'll tell you, Sinai, it reminds you. See that you don't refuse him who speaks. Can I also say this? Sometimes we get mixed up because we think a lot about people. And we talk a lot about people. And we talk about people being too liberal or too conservative or too judgmental or too tolerant. And we begin to think that really what matters is where we sit as relates to people. And we forget that the time will come when we will stand before God and answer to God 
for how we have listened to God and responded to God. And that all the people in the world won't be there. We don't answer to them. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. The Hebrew writer also says, be grateful. Verse 28. My version reads, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is amazing how short our memories can be. I think Israel shows us this in a great way. You know, Israel, three days. Three days after the Red Sea. Three days. They say, what are we going to drink, Moses? Why'd you bring us out here to die? A month and a half after the Red Sea, they say, a month and a half, we're talking six weeks, they say, I wish we had died in Egypt. At least there we had meat pots. Makes you wonder what they had in Egypt. I don't know that the slave conditions were that great, but they sure remember them better better than they were. Sure hate this manna. So sick of this manna. Can't stand the way God keeps providing for me. In those little chapters, before they even get to Sinai, we're talking weeks and months after the Exodus. They're already complaining. They've already forgotten. So when God brings them to the mountain, you know what he does? The first thing he does is remind them. I brought you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. When he tells the Ten Commandments, he says, don't forget, I brought you out of the land of slavery. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Not only does God lower himself merely to deal with us, coming down, literally descending on Mount Sinai, literally descending to come to earth in the person of Jesus. But when God makes covenants with people, he has special mercy for them. You know what? When he makes a covenant with Abraham, do you remember what he does? He begins it by promising Abraham something he doesn't deserve. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to lead you to this land. I'm going to give you all this stuff. Here are the people of Israel. Hey, I brought you to myself. Even though you're whining and complaining the whole way, I want to be your God and you be my people. God blesses and blesses and blesses. What's the spirit in which we embrace what God has done for us? It has to be. Being grateful. Now for you and me, what he highlights, what the Hebrew writer highlights in verse 28, is that we are grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A relationship with God, a rule and authority God has given, a place in God's people. He has given all of this to us and it cannot be shaken. It will not be destroyed. We've talked this year about the unstoppable kingdom, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that God has established and given to us. And the least we can do is live in a way that shows our appreciation. So, here's the part where we talk about how we need to be grateful and all the things that God has given us. I just want to remind you, God doesn't have to be good to us. And He is anyway. We don't deserve it. And particularly, we seem to, as we get more and more from God, just complain and want more and more from God, just like Israel did. The danger is that we become myopic like Israel did. Where we ignore the blessing of salvation and instead begin to assume that everything needs to be comfortable all the time. And the smallest inconveniences now produce much complaining from us. He says, be grateful. This is the proper posture in which we approach God. We do not approach God demanding. We approach God in need and in gratitude. And finally, the Hebrew writer says, offer reverent, awe-filled worship. 
Verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I would, I would expect that probably not many of us have heard the words reverence and awe a lot lately. These are concepts that have been lost in our time. In fact, we even have a word that used to mean something that means almost nothing anymore. It's the word awesome. If something is awesome, it just kind of means good. But something that's awesome, when you really trace the, the history of that word, means something that causes us to be in awe. Very little feels sacred in our time. I don't know if you have that same impression, but I sure do. That there are not things for most people in our country that stop us, that make us be quiet, that make a hush come over a crowd. But when you go back to Sinai, I just can't imagine these people without a tremendous sense of reverence and awe. When you see the presence of God and hear the thunderous power of his voice and you kind of shy away and back up and you say, you know what? I thought I wanted to hear from God. Kind of regret that. Verse 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. God speaks in fire on Mount Sinai. When you think of a consuming fire, which I know is not the picture of God that we really want. It's not the most comfortable picture. It is a reminder that God is not to be disrespected. We don't approach him flippantly because the wrath of God is a fearful thing. So as we approach God, we need this sense that God is not a being to be trifled with or taken lightly. We trust him, we submit to him, and we lower ourselves. But God is not a being that we can match wits with that we come to to out-argue. He is not like people, in other words. You know, where sometimes we think that what matters is whether or not we are better than or worse than other people, or how our people conversations go, or what people think about us. God is not a person, and we cannot treat him like one. He is altogether other, and we approach him in reverence and awe. Part of that is respect and humility that ask the question, who am I? That I could approach God, that God would accept me, that God actually wants to hear from me. And part of that is obedience. What does he want? What does he want me to be? So I have to ask, how much awe is in our worship? I believe this sense is missing from modern worship. I believe it's missing from modern Christianity. God is gracious and kind to us, but he is not a God to be taken lightly. I am deeply impressed by the fact that when Ananias and Sapphira come to God disrespecting, believing that God would not know if they lied, they were struck dead. I am deeply impressed by the fact that over and over again what seems to be missing in the worship of God's people, is this very sense that where he began by giving them all. So God has blessed us with better blessings and a better place and better promises. Are we going to listen to him? Are we going to be grateful? Are we going to offer reverent, awe-filled worship? Would you pray with me about it? 
our God and Father, we approach you in gratitude and in humility. We're thankful that you hear us. We're thankful that you love us, but we know we don't deserve it. Father, we are, we are humbled by what we've read and thought about today. And sometimes, Father, we, we become so familiar with you and your things that we forget the respect that you deserve. I pray that you'll help us as we try as a, as a congregation and as individuals to balance our love for you and our devotion to you with our respect for you. That we will not treat you lightly, though we know that you love us. That we will not take your grace and mercy for granted. That we will have the, the attitude that you deserve. Father, we are thankful because we don't live in fear as these people did. We're thankful that you have approached us in a way that we can understand and in a way that, that draws us to you. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful, Father, that you're willing to forgive us of our sins through his blood and that you've extended your grace to us through him. And Father, we pray that as your people, we can continue to follow you in a way that shows you the respect you deserve that is good for us and that shows others our devotion to you and draws them to you as well. This is our prayer, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Might be someone here who is ready this morning to come to God through Jesus. Jesus has died, shed that blood that we talked about so that you can be made perfect, you can be set free from your sins and stand right in the eyes of God. And what Jesus requires from you, he invites you to come to him. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus says, there is a, a new path. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And if you're ready to take that step this morning, turn away from your sins, to be baptized into Christ, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that. This time is for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.